0: There's nothing else on TV like Netflix's Lost in Space. It's a big budget family series. It's got a diverse global cast. It rivals tentpole films like Kong, Skull Island, and Pacific Rim Uprising on set pieces and special effects. And it co-stars Parker Posey in one of the odder, darker roles of her career. Executive producers Kevin Burns and John Jashney. Talk about what it took to put together the 10-hour series remake of the beloved 1960s space drama. Well, John Jashney and Kevin Burns, I appreciate you talking to me. Uh, I've seen the first, I think, six of the 10 episodes, and it's a pretty uh, impressive technical uh, spectacle. And that was the the thing I wanted to ask about first. Uh, John, I guess... how do you manage workflow on a show like this differently than the average soundstage show? I mean, is this is it orders of magnitude more complicated than the typical show?
1: Well, I mean, as Kevin and I both know from from our respective activities, you know, managing any production is like its own startup company. And, you know, some can be at significantly bigger scale than others, but and it can be a balance as you're you know, noting between interior stage work and, you know, the expanse and the vistas that we have, you know, captured in our series because when Kevin and I first envisioned this new version of Lost in Space, we we were talking about it between ourselves as tentpole television or fireplace TV where families could come back together and and spend time together, even though, you know, they're you know, a lot of the time consumed with their mobile devices. So you know, Kevin runs uh, a number of hit shows in the unscripted space on History Channel and other channels. And I've, you know, come up more on the movie side of the business. But, you know, we brought that generic skill set to this process and with all of our filmmaking partners on the series. But I guess that's my long winded way of saying every child is different. But in this case, we set out to, to create scale and spectacle for Netflix and bring audiences back together so the families can enjoy action adventure in ways that they used to.
2: Yeah. Scott, are you referring particularly to the fact that so much of this is done on location versus only on a soundstage?
0: Well, kind of all of it. I mean, cause you've got the stage, you've got the locations and you've also got the effects, you know, shooting for effects and then the actual post-production versus a, you know, like a single cam living room Comedy or a, a multicam living room comedy, where everything is taking place in such a smaller space. I'm curious how much of a of an ordeal, even versus a movie, uh, something like this is, because you're shooting, you know, a ten hour script versus you know a, a two hour script. It, it just seems like something I've never seen anything on on the magnitude like what you're doing.
2: Well, I mean, it is like it, you know, it's like shooting. It is like shooting a ten-hour movie, and every movie obviously is different. Sometimes you can have an entire movie shot on a soundstage or sound stages, and then sometimes they're all shot on location. Um, Lost in Space uh, is shot in and around Vancouver. Um, you know that choice was made for a number of reasons, but also because Neil Marshall who directed the first two episodes. Um, you know, he when when we met with Neil uh, and he took on the project, uh, he came to my office and he wanted to watch the original pilot for the 1965 series. And that pilot that Erwin Allen did uh, was shot very much it was it was shot on stages at 20th Century Fox, but it was also shot out in Red Rock Canyon and uh, uh, in and out in uh, the desert, uh, especially for a lot of the uh, uh, sequences that involved the chariot or the family and the chariot. So, um, Neil told us uh, right away that he liked that he wanted to shoot on real locations. He didn't want to do a lot of green screen and um and so i think our show has an advantage in that um there's a lot of location shooting uh he, you know neil took full advantage of the fact that up in vancouver you could get everything from a glacier to a forest to a desert and to kind of like a prairie and all at the same time because of course we're shooting in um you know february march april may of last year. And so it was, you know, it's very, very ambitious. And in that sense, it was very much like a 10-hour movie. Um, but uh, so, you know, but it's it's hard to compare it to anything because it becomes, as John was saying, each production is its own animal. It, you know, it's all broken down into shooting days and logistics and how many days you shoot exterior and how many days you shoot in the stage and uh, And the cast, um, you know, of course, had to be very very nimble at filming part of one scene on a sound stage and then part of the exact same st- uh, scene in a you know out on a glacier and maintain you know focus and continuity. and I think that's the toughest part of doing a show like this. Um, you know, is just maintaining the continuity of character over the course of time when you're shooting in so many different places.
0: How much of the special effects work for the series was a function of having something you wanted to do and figuring out how to do it versus having some techniques that your studio had developed and that thought would be appropriate for something like this and figuring out the the best way to incorporate some of those techniques?
2: Well again you, you know uh, it, it's it it's done you know you're, you know it's not approached from the way your the premise of your question is suggests meaning it all starts with a script and story it all starts with assuming especially now with today's special effects that you can pretty much realize anything you can imagine uh, I mean that is the the beauty of of what can be done with CGI these days. So it really started with a script, and John and I worked with uh, Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless, the writers, uh, and then when uh, Zach Estrin, who's the showrunner, was brought in, and that was right after we had we had sold the original pilot to Netflix. Uh, we brought Zach in, and then. Zach and Mattenberg and Neil Marshall formed the nucleus of a creative team that worked with John and I, and they were responsible for kind of not only kind of refining that script, but in, in the case of Zach and Neil particularly, along with their team and the DP, of course, and the effects team, breaking everything down into shots. So it's not so much of saying, well, we can we can do this. So let's put this in the script. It's what does the script call for? So for example, when the ship when when the when the script calls for a spaceship, um, you know the Jupiter 2. Uh, then it goes through, okay, you start with the original nineteen sixty five ship and then how close to that do we want to stay? And you bring in designers and then you bring in, you know, uh people who have uh done you know, the our costume designer did the Martian, won an Academy Award for the movie The Martian, but you also bring in people who consult uh with NASA and who uh bring in today's science technology not the technology of science fiction from 1965 but from you know 2016 2017 and what do we pre-envision for what we're going to do let's say on Mars so the ship the Jupiter 2 kind of begins with something that echoes the original ship from the TV series so that it's familiar enough to the fans so that we started kind of with this circular disc but then it it starts to take shape, uh, kind of like something that echoes the Millennium Falcon to some viewers, but but it's totally functional as what it needs to be, which is a spaceship that can not only fly into deep space, but can also fly in Earth's atmosphere. So you realize that, and then it's like, okay, some of the interior is literally built on a soundstage, the exterior is partly CGI, but it's all done to serve the practical needs of a script.
0: One thing I really like about the series and I I don't remember from the from the original series well enough to say how much this correlates and how much of it was new for the new series, but the the element of the the three Robinson kids having very specific responsibilities and being very professional at their responsibilities, I think is such a great element for the show. I mean, not just in it being a, a family series and everybody having something to watch for, for their own, uh, uh, you know, seeing themselves in the show, but just from showing these kids at, at being really good at these things.
2: Well, and that was also, um, Developed, You know, John and I developed that with Matt and Burke and with Legendary, you know, with whom we developed the property before it went out to market and was sold to Netflix. Um, and uh, John at the time was uh, a chief executive at Legendary uh, who helped put the, the team together at Legendary that we worked with. But a lot of that was... Just, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of the original series. And in the original series, there were very specific um, character well. distinctions between uh, Judy, the oldest daughter, Penny, the middle child, and Will. Um, originally, Judy was supposed to be someone who wanted a career in musical comedy theater, uh, but who joined her family on this colonization mission. So Judy was you know, not supposed to be um, spectacularly smart or spectacularly uh, scientific. Well, we changed that when we cast Taylor Russell as Judy. Uh, you know, the idea was that she would be the oldest child. but uh, And even though her character is only 18 years old, she's really very, very smart. And she's a bit like a female Doogie Hauser in that she's already a doctor. She's a young doctor, she's new, but she's already completed medical school, and so she brings that training to her character. Penny is very much like Angela Cartwright's character in the original series. I mean, Lena Sundwall plays Penny... And, uh, but Penny was always interested in animals, zoology, but she was also big on reading. And the original Penny Robinson in the series would read Shakespeare. And she was always asking if they met aliens, if if she if they could get her books or tapes. Well, it's interesting because the uh, writers picked up on that and Mina's character of Penny uh, is not, particularly remarkable in any scientific uh, thing. She's very much a middle child, but she, uh, loves reading and she loves, uh, you know, there's a scene in the first episode where she's reading Moby Dick to her sister and Will is different than Billy Moomy's character of Will. Will was supposed to be, uh, a scientific genius, Uh, and very good at electronics, which is another reason why he kind of has a kinship with the robot. And that's very similar in both shows. But what we did was gave Max Jenkins, Will Robinson, um, some emotional complexities. He's not a very secure child. Billy Mooney's Will Robinson was plucky and independent and fierce, fearless. Uh, Max, needs to grow up a little bit. We we cast him a little younger, partly because we knew we would have to, you know, if the show is successful, he would be aging pretty rapidly. But we wanted him to have a character arc. So he starts out a little bit more timid uh, than Billy Mooney's Will Robinson, but he learns very quickly.
0: And then you have the parents in a, a little bit different sort of marriage than you would typically see in a family mom, dad, and the kids go on an adventure kind of show. They're semi not together, right?
2: Yeah, that was another big uh, thing that we talked about. Again, the original Austin Space was set in the then far future of 1997. Well, (laughs) you know, Similarly, now that we're 50, 53 years past the date of the original Lost in Space, we're, uh, we set it, you know, in the far future of like 2047, I think it is. And, um, and, you know, so we wanted the family to reflect where we think the modern family, you know, albeit the American family, is going. Uh, so we wanted them to be American, Um, even though it has an international cast and an international scope. But we wanted them to reflect, you know, modern problems. Um, You know, the original family, the original Robinsons, were the first colonists in space. And because of that, they had to be picked because they were perfect. Uh, They had to represent, you know, like, like the original Gemini and Apollo astronauts who had to be kind of representatives of perfection. Well, we didn't want that in this case. We said, look, there are other colonists. The Robinsons are, they're very smart, but they're not superhuman. Um, they're real people. And so we, we gave them a kind of a marital problem. Um, it's not a serious one, but it's one that needs to be worked out. Over the course of the first season. And so, you know, we, we, we really wanted it to reflect where we think the American family is going, where we think future families will go, but not undermining the importance of, you know, uh, three kids who have, you know, a mom and a dad and face an enormous amount of challenges.
0: And then you've got the other major character we haven't talked about yet, which is Parker Posey's hair. Yes. She's got really big, really big hair.
2: Which changes over the course of, uh, if you haven't seen past season six, you'll be very interested. I asked her because her hair kind of evolves, and I'm not going to say how. And I asked her, I said, you know, that was an interesting choice you made. Um, And and she had a very deliberate uh, answer, which I don't want to say because it'll give away too much, but you will see that the hair kind of evolves from, Wild hair to very kind of coiffed hair. and that's a deliberate choice she made and to be curious uh, uh, if the people listening to this uh, uh, can figure out what her reasoning
0: was. She's interesting. I've never seen her do anything quite like this before. Uh, she is is usually a little uh pluckier than uh, than sh- than she is in this show she's 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 quite dark in this show.
2: John, you want to
0: talk about that? Well, I mean, I chase a bit
1: at the word dark. She's complicated, for sure, but those gradations of her personality were her interpretation. I mean, she had a great love. One of the first things she said to Kevin and I when we approached her about the role was there was this amazing synchronicity, really, that she had grown up with the show, had had a real love for and connection to Jonathan Harris's. Portrayal of the character of Doctor Smith, and so it seemed kismet that, that that we would approach her and that she would ultimately sign on because it wouldn't have been safe to assume there would necessarily be this gender flip that we chose that uh, that Kevin actually suggested I believe initially that we do with the character. So uh, she, in trying to harness what Jonathan. Uh, did with the role and extend it while not seeming to ape or replicate it, came up with these facets of, you know, it may be a black diamond at times, but it's a diamond and it keeps everyone on their toes, including the audience. So there's a sly, wry, ever-changing posture that she takes on that causes you not only to deal with the unpredictability of the environment and the the plot developments that keep coming at our family, but actually their relationship with her and whether she is or isn't a resource given what they all have to contend with. I,
2: I think the other thing I would add is when Lost in Space was conceived by Irwin Allen and Shimon Winselberg back in 1965, 64, actually, uh, before they shot the pilot, um, uh, they saw. Uh, actually Smith, the character of Smith and the robot were not in the pilot, but the pilot was meant to be very serious, very action adventure played very straight, not, not for comedy, um, very much in tone, like the show we're currently producing for Netflix. In other words, it's very much the same. Well, when they added Smith, uh, CBS suggested that they bring Smith in, uh, as an antagonist, as a human antagonist, and bring the robot in as something that would be kind of fun for for kids. Um, Jonathan's character, Jonathan Harris's Dr. Smith, was a very sinister, cunning, um, murderous character who didn't think twice about ordering the robot to go and kill the children. Um, but Jonathan felt that it was too... Too dark, um, and and uh, and CBS did not like the fact that the Smith character could be frightening to children. So they began evolving Smith rather quickly into a comedic villain and into basically an overgrown kid. And even though he was del- a delight to young kids who loved watching the original Lost in Space, it it changed the tone of the series. And so what we Uh, When we talked with Matt and Burke and later with Zach, um, we said, look, we would love to see this back where it started as a more serious um, view of Lost in Space. So in doing that, we wanted to reconceive Dr. Smith, because even though Smith started as a serious antagonist, if not villain, uh, he became so identified with, oh, the pain and my, you know, my delicate back and you bubble-headed booby all things that I loved, uh, again, when I was 10, 11 years old, but we were like, well, we don't want to make people think that that's who Dr. Smith is going to be. We want to put Smith kind of back into the realm of the unpredictable, fly, self-protecting villain who is... You know, and what you find in Parker and what she has done so brilliantly in the role is she is all about herself and and saving her life and saving herself. But you also see that the Robinsons are such good people that they are changing her, that she's beginning to accept that she might be part of this family and and not have to be so much at odds with it. So it does evolve over time. I mean, her character is always going to be unpredictable and self-centered, but in ways that I think will continually surprise the viewer.
0: With the robot character, I see some elements of of Frankenstein and some elements of E.T. I'm curious whether either of those was much of a part of the conversation about how that character would function in the show.
2: Well, it was, it was totally deliberate. Again, it was um, a, a, a very difficult decision to come to because, again, the original robot became so loved and so iconic and so kid-friendly. But again, we wanted to do something with darker tones. And Mattenberg, and uh, I think it was Mattenberg, who initially suggested that the robot be of alien origin, and which excited us because... You know, we didn't want every one of the colonists, because there's more than one, sto- you know, more than one castaway on this show. Uh, there are other families. We didn't want them all to have robots. And we wanted the robot to remain as it was in the original show, very unique and, again, unpredictable. So by making it alien, uh, it allowed us to reconceive him a little bit and be less of a computer servant and more of a of a sentient creature who, again, you don't know if he's good or evil. You don't know if he's friend or foe, but John, uh, you know, is a big fan as I am of the movie iron giant. And I'm a big fan and have been since I was a child of Frankenstein. So this idea of, of a, a big kind of beast effectively, but who is warmed by the heart and love of a child um, and who becomes the best friend to Will Robinson is, a, is something that hearkens to the original show but, again, brings something very unique to it.
0: The term diversity writer became kind of a, a big buzzer after uh, Frances McDormand used it during her Academy Award speech. And I, I think I have already started to see... Uh, uh, that sensibility f- filtering its way into TV. You've got a extremely diverse cast. Uh, I noted two female directors in the first five episodes. How, is that something that happened in a, as a matter of course in putting the show together, or is that something you do on purpose?
2: Um, I, If I can speak to that, I, I, I don't know that it was... I think in some cases, it's conscious, because I do think that there is a feeling in this industry that uh, women and minorities have been very underrepresented, uh, not as writers, because women have always been screenwriters ever since the beginning of motion pictures. But, but I think particularly in directing, um, there haven't been a lot of open doors for women or minority directors. And, and as a result, there are not a lot of available women and directors. But the idea to make the cast diverse really was not part of any agenda other than the fact that, um, well, number one, uh, we wanted it to reflect where we're going to be 30 years in the future. And I think America is a much more racially diverse country, number one, uh, a more racially diverse culture. uh, So I think we wanted to reflect that. But also, number two, and John can speak very well to this. The industry is global. Uh, The markets are global. Lost in Space is premiering on Friday, uh, this April 13th, in over 200 countries in more than 20 languages, all on the same day, at the same minute. And, And so when you are playing to a global market, you want the audience to all feel like they have a stake in the adventure. So you don't want it to be all about you know, uh, North American uh, Anglo Saxons. You want it to be reflective of a global market, even though the core family is still very much an American family. So, I, I would say that the the diversity aspect of the characters is a reflection of the audience for whom the show was intended. Just as those considerations were made in 1965. I, by the way, it's 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 interesting to just note that in 1965. When Guy Williams, who was an Italian American, was cast as John Robinson the father, CBS had a problem with that because they thought he, they thought he looked too swarthy. Uh, he had played Zorro, and they said, "Well, he doesn't look like an astronaut. Astronauts are supposed to look like John Glenn." Astronauts are supposed to look like the Apollo astronauts and the Mercury and Gemini astronauts, and 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 there was even a, a kind of a racial quote unquote prejudice even then, which Irwin Allen fought because he wanted Guy Williams for the role because Guy Williams was every kid's hero as as Zorro, and uh, but it's interesting to think that at the time the casting of Guy Williams was considered controversial. Uh, because he didn't fit the typical profile of what was then the crew-cutted American astronaut. Well, you know, but all we're doing is reflecting the future, and that's where the show is set. But in terms of the, the uh, creative team, the writers or the directors, writers, I don't think women writers are particularly unique, and there was no agenda there per se, uh, but I definitely think it's not so much you know, deliberately going after women directors is just making sure we're not shutting them out.
1: That's another way of saying that is, I think another way of saying that is it certainly was, wasn't by legislation. It was by pragmatism. We're trying to reflect the world in which we live and this future world that represents where the world is going. And if people are expected around the world, as Kevin says, to see themselves in these characters and to be inspired and to have catharsis that these characters do extraordinary things and contend with extraordinary circumstances would be foolish to to not have it be that yeah. way. But then forget we were developing and producing this show a lot earlier than the diversity writers. Yeah, John, John, John and I go back. To,
2: John and I go back twenty years on this project. Uh, I go back to when I was ten, but uh, it, it was quite a long time ago. But the point is that. Yeah, this wasn't like we weren't responding to some fad. Uh, Even the choice to make Judy Robinson uh, the mixed-race daughter of Maureen from a previous marriage was uh, an idea that we had about 10, 12 years ago um, uh, when we were developing at an earlier time with a different team of writers because, again, I wanted to make the characters more interesting um, you know, in 1965, you know, the, the, the mother, you know, June Lockhart was supposed to be a bio, uh, physicist, um, but she didn't really get to do much except laundry, uh, and, and, and cooking, uh, you know, and, and she, God bless June Lockhart, but she was lucky if she said, oh, John, and that was her, the extent of her entire dialogue, um, the uh, so you know we knew we wanted a full blooded, uh, you know, full-blooded characters who all have something important to do. and and also, it is about a family. and I think the other the other de- decisions to um, you know, I think the biggest decision in terms of the creative team behind the show, and I know this was important for John and I, is that they could. They were comfortable writing a show that was for families, not for children, uh, not not for children in the way the original show was written, but a show that children could watch with their parents and grandparents and 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 that everyone could relate to it. So it was important that a lot of the people on the writing staff um, had kids and and knew how families could watch these things together.
0: And this may be more of a marketing question than the two of you ever got too involved in. But how do you signal that in today's TV environment where kids are watching certain shows on certain devices and mom and dad may be watching the same thing or watching different things? How do you signal that this is a family show that everybody can watch on the big TV in the den at the same time?
2: Well, I think the poster being a young boy looking into the face of an extraordinarily bizarre looking robot is a pretty good start to tell you that, you know, this is going to be kind of like an E.T. Iron Giant kind of adventure. And uh, I think that immediately brings kids in. And I think the fact that it's lost in space, which is still a much loved and much remembered franchise from 53 years ago. Um, is pretty well known to people, certainly over forty and fifty years old. So um, I think I think that kind of lets you know that you're going to be in for something that's very inclusive.
1: And I think that the the family dynamic that exists, obviously in a slightly more pushed way, in one of our favorite films is which is The Incredibles. You know that's a, that's a family story as well. Now they're doing incredibly amazing things, and it's, it obviously tips into the superhero aspect and we were attempting a much more grounded science, plausible action adventure for our family, but family is forever. And it is, it goes with you, wherever you are, whether the burdens of family and needing to figure it out together or the blessings of family. And, and so I think that, again, we have an array of different differently aged characters a number of different perspectives, racially, gender-wise, and people will they will choose their avatar that is their way, their prism into this experience. And so you know the marketing team at Netflix, we have been exceptionally happy with, you know, legendary and Netflix have worked very carefully to to achieve our ambition for this, that this be regarded as kind of temple television or fireplace television, as we touched on earlier. So You know, there there are obviously different commercials and different spots and different video pieces that are crafted to indicate subtly and organically and authentically, hey, this show is for you. It's for you, too. You may not necessarily think it if you're not normally a sci-fi fan or or you don't normally go to Comic-Con, but... Emotion is is the greatest special effect of all. And we figured that was a key way of inviting everyone in the tent to go on this amazing, transportive journey.
0: The one actor's name that I saw in the, the notes, even before I started uh, reading about the series or watching the episodes, that, that really made me interested uh, to see is Molly Parker. I, she's been in a lot of things. I knew her mostly for... Uh, House of Cards, and then most recently she had been in a uh, sort of a hybrid documentary series on Netflix called Wormwood that was, I think, not even a speaking role or maybe barely a speaking role, but she conveys so much empathy without exaggeration or without uh, sort of what you would think of as emoting uh, is probably m- more convincing at that than 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 any other uh, actor I-, I can name right now. Is that what she does in, in this part that that sells her as the the mother, or or would would you say there's some other particular alchemy that that is what works for her in this series?
1: Well, I mean, great actors portray truth, right? And Molly, above and beyond being similarly aged to Maureen Robinson as written, and being a mother in real life to a boy who is approximately Will's age, and in fact, on location, became great friends with Max Jenkins, who was playing our Will Robinson. That's
0: very cool.
1: So even if she weren't a great actor, you know, she could draw on her life because she's She's living so much of what Maureen is as we have worked with our fellow producers and writers to create her. But a bit and beyond that, she's a craftsperson, right? She, she is an artist. She aspires to quality and distinction. And she, it mattered not to her that she was going to another world to portray this reality. Because again, if, if that truth didn't travel with her, people would not see themselves in her. So she's just a very, she's a fun-loving person, but she's very serious-minded about her work. And I think she was surprised at at her interest in something that she had not done before, because it, it is a specific genre, certainly, and sometimes you're either inclined to it or not. And she was determined to find new facets of her ability by leveraging her curiosity. And she just admired more who Maureen was and who Maureen was relative to John and how they were partners and how they were trying to hold this family together against, you know, the cataclysm around the corner.
2: I I would also say that, um, you know, not only, I mean, yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, she's brilliant in the role. Uh, She brings an enormous amount of kind of quiet, Strength and integrity to the role. She she, she conveys smarts, um, but a great deal of humanity. I mean, she she fights for her children. She's proud of her kids. She fought to get them off the planet. She fought to save them, but in a weird way, the science fiction aspects of Lost in Space are incidental to the foundation of it because this is a family, you know, of course the original source material was the Swiss family Robinson, which was about a, a family of people shipwrecked on a on a very dangerous um, remote island. Well, the, the dynamics of this are very similar. I mean, they happen to be uh, traveling in a spaceship to a planet that they get effectively shipwrecked and they have to land on a different planet, which they don't know anything about. They they can't predict what's going to happen. They have to struggle to survive. They are met with um, really surprising and shocking things along the way. But the foundation is always family. And I would say in the case of a lot of the people who have signed on to the show, um, it was important that it was a show that they could watch with their kids. And we, we, John and I hear that over and over and over, that they wanted to work on something they could watch as a family, that their kids could watch. Um, they, they feel that there's too little being made uh, that can be watched intergenerationally. Um, you know, uh, another one of the shows I do for the History Channel, as John suggested, was I do a, a reality show called The Curse of Oak Island. Uh, that shot up in uh, Nova scotia. and um, and it's a huge hit, but it's an intergenerational hit. And the biggest compliment we get with that show is that people can watch it with their kids and their grandchildren. and And I think that's the appeal of lost in space. I think it's a it's a testament to what Zach and Matt and Burke and the creative team have done is that when John and I see, not only the scripts, but the particularly the cuts of the show. and we see every cut as as uh, it gets worked on after shooting. And without the special effects, without the CGI, without everything being put in place, it still works. It's still about humans and humans facing the elements and uh, and you and the show is emotional and you know it brings you to tears even when the effect shots are not in. And that, I think, is a tremendous compliment uh, to the work that the uh, creative team, our partners, have done.
0: Well, I think this is the first show um, I've seen that's oriented as a, f- a family show that has hit that tentpole sensibility. There are uh, scenes that feel like, Jurassic Park or or Indiana Jones or or Star Wars or that have the, the the big set piece, but that also have the you know, the 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 different characters on their, you know, on their different arcs trying to figure things out. And some of them are kids. And it I'm, I've, I have blown through the first six episodes and, 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 and really uh, looking forward to, to getting to these last four
2: well i, I and i 'm I'm, I'm thrilled because you 're going to love the last four because if uh, you know the, the last five episodes in particular are a real ride to the the ending which I will not spoil but the i 'm going to um, shamelessly give an enormous amount of partner to my to my or enormous amount of credit to my partner John who was, as I said, the executive, uh, creative executive in charge of legendary pictures, and uh, John, you know, doesn't often mention his credits, but they include Jurassic World, uh, Kong Skull Island, uh, you know, uh, um, Pacific Rim, uh, the Batman franchise, the Superman franchise, uh, you know, the the Inception and Interstellar, uh, to name just a few, and I think that John, uh, had, you know, brought a feature filmmaker's sensibilities and expectations into this mix, which is why we got Neil Marshall. In other words, John working with Legendary, they weren't making a television series. They were making something that, that was going to be lost in space as if it was made like Jurassic Park meets The, meets the Martian. And that was the mandate. That was the where we where John and I set the bar. Um, and uh, and I would say that, without exception, um, we feel we've met that expectation. Some people who have been you know overall, the critical response has been overwhelmingly positive, and we're incredibly happy. but but sometimes we'll read a review where people will say, well, it's not um, it's not Galactica." Uh, and you go, well, it's not supposed to be, you know, it's not dystopic. It's not dark. It's not, uh, and it's, it's not adult in that sense. It is still lost in space. It is still a show that was meant to be a family adventure show. Uh, it's not meant to be serious, dark, uh, Arthur C. Clark science fiction, although right. it, although the backdrop is science fiction. Uh, so I think you know audiences need to come to it knowing it's not a kids' show, um, but it's also not a dystopic 1984 uh, kind of a cynical uh, political uh, you know a diatribe. Um, you know some people have said, well, why aren't they talking about uh, climate change and and uh, class warfare and gender issues? And I'm like, well. Molly Parker, I think, said it best when they previewed uh, the show at WonderCon, and she said, well, what's great about the show, in her opinion, is that this is set at a time, you know, 30, 40 years from now when we've worked all that out and we're not about that. You know, it's, it's more about unity and struggling for survival. And I, and I think that's a hopeful message, which I, I hope that the audience will embrace.
0: Well, and she probably loves yeah, shows think- like the Game of Thrones and The Walking Dead, but she doesn't watch them. She doesn't watch those shows with her six-year-old.
2: Right. So, if people are looking for this to be, you know, their show that they can watch, you know, uh, that's going to have a lot of family drama and uh, you know, bloodshed, and and, I, and I'm not trying to be a purist. I mean, I like adult-themed. You know, entertainment as well, but this is again—it's lost in space. We were very respectful not to, not to make it into something it's not. It was always meant to be family friendly. Uh, there is still an enormous fan base that loves the original, and we were very respectful of the changes that we made—that you know, hearken back to the original but try to bring the same freshness and originality to something being made in 2018 that was originally made in
0: 1965. Well, John Jashney and I
1: Kevin think, Burns Go ahead. Let me just say uh, Kevin's been far too generous in crediting me with things <laughs> that I had absolutely nothing to do with, but some of that happened on my watch. And, but what is the constant and what is true is that legendary, and as a company, and we as fans and as creatives love to create escapist, transportive, awe fueled experiences that allow people to drop out of the daily life, put on a new suit of clothes, and drive a new vehicle to far off distant places. and to come back transformed and as kevin eloquently said that's what we sought to do here we're grateful that we got the resources to mount it in this way and we just hope that people respond We, we think they will and it sounds like you've already started too so
0: thank you for your kind words well i really appreciate you talking to me